would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 554. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we'll read the first 15 verses. It's here now from God's Word. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man." I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the Word of our God. As we gather together on this last Sunday of another year... It can be a time to both reflect upon the past and also a time to look ahead to the future. Perhaps for you, there were many joyous occasions from 2012 that you look back upon with great delight. Perhaps for others of you, this year was filled with its share of sorrow. Sorrow as you continue to grieve, perhaps the the loss of a loved one. Or perhaps it was a year that was filled with much regret. Regret because of poor decisions that you made, choices that had less than desirable consequences. Regardless of whether you were sad or whether you were delighted for this year to come to an end, who of us can truly say that everything over the past year fit exactly our expectations? Who of us can say that everything worked out just according to the way that we planned, just the way that we had hoped? And yet at the same time, as we finish one year and as we look to the start of another, there's a new set of emotions that might be running through our minds and hearts. Excitement and anticipation at the possibilities of the year ahead. Perhaps a renewed determination to address areas of change in your life. But this time with an increased resolve to actually follow through on those things. Or perhaps worry and fear because of all of the instability in the world around us, anxiety as to what the coming year might hold for you. As we look back over time, we know that things didn't work out the way that we had hoped, the way that we had planned. As we look to the future, 
As optimistic as we would like to be, we know realistically things are not going to work out the way that we plan, the way that we hope. As God's people, we will readily confess that the time that we have upon this earth is a gift from God. And at the same time, it's a life that is filled with disappointments, with regret, with frustration, and more. Many people go through this life struggling, trying to balance their view of God with the horrors and the struggles that we see in the world around us. How do we reconcile the two? How do we bring together a God who is loving and who is in control of all things versus the horrible and the heart-wrenching things that we see in the world around us? I was reading an op-ed piece this past week by a Roman Catholic priest in which he basically said this, I have no idea why terrible things happen in this world And I don't believe that we can have an answer. How could God allow them? Perhaps he's not really in control as we used to think. Perhaps he is not as kind and benevolent as we have been led to believe. Much of the struggle that we experience in life comes from the fact that we are creatures of time. We are stuck in time. That's part of our finitude. That's part of who we are as creatures. And yet much of the frustration that we experience in life comes because we don't like this fact. We would very much like to transcend time. Given the opportunity to control time, who of us wouldn't jump at that opportunity? What do we really want? Well, in a sense, we would rather be God. We would rather at least be Him part of the time rather than trust Him. I think there's a sense in which we feel stuck in time and we would rather be masters of time rather than mastered by time. And to make matters worse, we get impatient and we get frustrated with anything that takes time. Ken Myers in his audio magazine states that in the time in which we live in America, we resist quiet contemplation. We fight against careful, thoughtful, meticulous research. We pull away from things that might require effort of emotional energy, effort at mental engagement. And why? Because we want things instantly. We live in a world in which anything that's desirable can be downloaded in just a moment. And so then we convince ourselves that anything that we have to wait for is really not worth our time. Anything that we have to wait for will be outdated by the time we get it anyway, so why work at obtaining it? We want the gap between desire and fulfillment to be as short as possible. We want everything handed to us, and we sort of presume that a Wikipedia-based education is sufficient for true knowledge and wisdom. But as you spend time in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, as you spend time in the book of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, what you see is instruction on how we, as God's creatures, are to live with wisdom in time. The wise person is the person who has learned at the appropriate time, the appropriate time to speak and the appropriate time to refrain from speaking. The wise person knows the right time to act and the right way to go about acting. Wisdom is all about learning to trust in the Lord of time, knowing that all of your days are ordained by him before one of them comes to be. Wisdom means not only 
assenting to that truth, not only just acknowledging it intellectually that I believe the Lord is in control of all things, but real wisdom means joyfully and confidently and contentedly living out of this conviction that He is the Lord of time and that He is lovingly guiding each one of your days. And what we learn here in this passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is that we don't have control. There are times in our lives, certainly, where we have the illusion of control, but we really have no control over anything. Now, that doesn't mean that our response should then be sort of a fatalistic approach in which we throw up our hands and say, well, I can't control anything anyway, so it doesn't really matter what I do. But rather, we lack control, but we serve a God who rules over all, one who is the Lord of time, one whom we can trust, and one in whom we can delight. And one of the reasons why the writer of Ecclesiastes writes this book is to push you to reckon with this fact, that if you think that this life is all that there is, then there is no point to anything. If you are just born into this world, and if you simply cease to exist after you die, then there is no purpose to anything that you do in life. None of the time that you spend in this life matters Nothing that you do matters if this life is all there is. And if you think that you can find meaning and purpose and hope in life without reference to God, you're simply deluded and you're not taking an honest look at your life. An honest look at life without reference to God will lead to despair. And by His grace, that despair will lead you to the only hope that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why I believe that Ecclesiastes is not a pessimistic book, as many have labeled it, but really one of the most hope-filled books ever written, because it points us to the one who is Lord over all. It points us to the one who has sent His Son into this world to redeem lost sinners. And so let's look at how the author of this book takes a realistic approach towards life and applies it to the way that we think of our time in this life. First, let's look at the poem in the first eight verses, which captures for us the dilemma of time. Now, even if you've spent very little time in the book of Ecclesiastes, this poem undoubtedly sounds familiar to you. You probably caught yourselves singing to it as you listen to the oldies station. It's one of the most well-known passages in the Bible because of its symmetry and because of the way that it captures the whole spectrum of human life. Now, as a whole, what we see in this poem, again, is the dilemma of time. We see the tension of living in a fallen world. Each pair that is listed has one that is more desirable than its opposite. If you were handed a, a multiple choice quiz and told, circle the things that the circumstances, the times that are more desirable in your life, of course, you would circle life over death. You would choose unity over division, peace over war. And yet, the reality of living in a fallen world forces us to deal with the certainty of those undesirable opposites, whether it's death or hardship, whether it's inner emotional struggle whether it's learning how to conduct ourselves in relationships, the way that we use our words, the way that we approach our possessions, the way that we think of our employment, in every area of life, we know that there is joy and hardship. We know that there is delight and struggle. 
And notice in these verses that there are 14 pairs. And so in that number of completion, what we see is the fact that God is the one who rules over every area of human life. He rules over every portion of human existence. In these verses, he is describing everything that happens in this life. And notice as he writes the poem, the way in which he covers the extremes of life. Verse 2, for example, there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot that which is planted. Not only has God established our beginning at birth, you see, but he knows the exact moment of our death. He brings life and he determines the length of our days. And not only does he know our birth and death, not only does he know our beginning and our end, but the implication is he knows everything else in between. And not only does he know every one of our days, but he rules completely and absolutely over each one of those days. Martin Luther said, You cannot live any longer than the Lord has prescribed, nor die any sooner. And that fact ought to give us great comfort in life, to know that nothing can happen to us unless it comes from the eternal counsel of our Lord. We read in Deuteronomy 32, See now that I, even I, says the Lord, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Everything that is owes its existence to Him, and He is the one who is in control of all things. And in verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. I think here is referring to times of division and times of peace, times of conflict and times of restoration. And in verse 4, he moves into the realm of emotions, weeping and laughter, mourning and dancing. And here again, we see the whole range of human emotion. We see these extremes, and not only the extremes, but we can say that every other emotion in between, there is a time for that as well. In verse 5, is a little more difficult to interpret. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. Perhaps he is addressing the need to create walled defenses in times of conflict and the tearing down of those walls in times of peace. Or perhaps he's talking about the removal of stones from a field so that it can be used for planting crops or the casting of those stones into a field of your enemy to make things more difficult for him. But either way, I think he's addressing the reality of conflict versus peace, division versus unity. And we see this in the second part of verse 5, which helps us interpret the first part of that verse, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. In verse 6, a time to seek and lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. Here he is addressing the way that we think of our possessions or perhaps the longings that capture our hearts. There's a time to look for something and a time to give up that search. Perhaps a time to lay aside the longing that has filled your heart, acknowledging that that desire is not going to come to fulfillment, and wisdom dictates that you move on to another pursuit. In verse 7, there is a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to speak and a time to be silent. And perhaps here he is speaking of a time of mourning in which a garment might be torn in sorrow, and then a time of mending that garment when sorrow is laid aside. 
And in that time of mourning, perhaps as you come and you sit with another person who grieves, there is a time to speak words of comfort and simply a time to sit and be in the presence of those who suffer loss. In verse 8, the emotions of love and hate, war and peace, it's interesting that they are not advocated or condemned one way or the other, but simply described as part of the human experience. So what's the point that he's making as he covers every area of life in this poem? Well, some commentators say that the writer is just being his pessimistic self, droning on and on about all of the struggles in life, simply stating that there is a time for this and a time for that, and there's nothing that you can do about it, but just sort of suck it up and deal with life. But instead, I think by using such structure of symmetry in these 14 pairs, he is teaching us something very profound, something that if we can master, we can apply it to all of the circumstances that we face in this life. We can respond to all circumstances with joy and trust in the Lord. What he is helping us to see is that our covenant God is the one who rules with absolute sovereignty over all things, over all things. A lot of people, just like the Roman Catholic priest who can't bring himself to acknowledge God's control over tragedy, a lot of people think that God is an either-or God. Either he is in control of all things and he cannot be loving, or he means well, but he simply lacks the ability to rule over all of the complexities of this universe. Many people resist this teaching of God's very own word, his absolute sovereign control. They resist a a conviction of his control because they are only comfortable with a one-dimensional deity. Many people are okay with going through this list, through this poem, and ascribing half of the poem to the Lord. They're okay with a God who brings life, a God who heals, a God who brings love and peace. But they're uncomfortable with the God who brings death, with the one who uproots, and the one who brings war. And so when horrible things happen in the world around us that we don't completely understand, the typical response that we hear in the world around us is something like this. I refuse to believe in a God who might allow innocent little children to be killed by a deranged man. Harsh words, accusatory words, words you see that reflect human reasoning imposed upon the nature of God, words that reflect only one dimension of what we read here in this poem. Instead, what we learn here in this poem is that God is not an either-or God, but he is a both and God. So for example, take this, a time to love and a time to hate. And certainly God is love, but we could say that a facet of God's perfect and divine love is his appropriate wrath and vengeance poured out in judgment upon evil in this world. Or for example, there is a time for peace and a time to war. Now we know that a day of peace is coming at the return of our Savior. But we know that in the meantime, as the Lord's people, we are very much engaged in a time of spiritual war. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians chapter 6. And so as we allow our minds and our hearts to be shaped, not by our reasoning imposed upon the Lord, you see, but allowing His word of truth to shape us, allowing His self-revelation to change our tone and demeanor into something that's much more appropriate. And so instead of accusing the Lord when things don't go the way that we want, 
instead of questioning his purposes when things don't work the way that we think they should, our response by his grace can be something like this. I believe that God is the giver of life and absolutely in control of all events, even the death of a child. That doesn't mean that I understand his mysterious purposes, but I will humble myself before him because he tells me that he loves me. He tells me that I am a child of the king. He tells me that he rules over all things, and he tells me that he has purpose in all things. And so I trust him, not my own reasoning, not my own emotions, but I trust him because he is the Lord and he is my Lord. He is my king. He is my sovereign. Even though things are difficult, even though things are mysterious in this world, we can trust in the Lord of time. So what we see in this poem is that we need a complete picture of the Lord if we are going to understand time. We need everything that is captured in this poem if we are going to understand who our God is and if we are going to understand our place in this world. We need both halves to teach us about the character of the Lord. Because if we don't have a God who rules over all things in human history, if we don't have a God that rules over absolutely everything, well, what's the alternative? A God who's not in control at all? A God who brings about some things but not others? A God who arbitrarily, without any purpose at all, brings things about in this world? A God who can't really be trusted? If he is not absolutely sovereign, then how do we know which things he is ruling over and which things he's not? If he does not rule and reign over the smallest, most seemingly insignificant, most minute detail and event in this universe, then he cannot be trusted with anything. There simply are no renegade molecules in the entire universe. There is absolutely nothing outside of the control of God. And if there is then he is not worthy of our worship. Even the most seemingly insignificant event left to its own has the possibility of derailing God. Without absolute divine sovereignty, we do not have a trustworthy God. We do not have a God that we should revere and fear and worship. And so this poem masterfully captures for us the sovereign Lord of time. And then in verses 9 and following, he begins to draw implications from the reality of God's sovereign rule over time. In other words, if our God is the sovereign Lord of time, well, what does that mean for the way that you and I live our lives from one year to the next? Well, for a moment, let's, let's back up and recall that the writer of Ecclesiastes is seeking to make sense of life under the sun. And for a time, what he does is he pursues everything that this world has to offer in terms of fulfillment, significance, and satisfaction. And everything that he pursues, he acknowledges that he comes up empty. Everything in this life under the sun is meaningless if it is pursued without reference to God. And so here, as he considers time itself, and as he considers our efforts, our labors in time, he acknowledges in verse 11 that the Lord has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity in the hearts of man. Now, let's, let's think about this for just a moment. 
Again, I think much of the frustration in our life comes because of our limitations. It comes because of our finitude. It becomes because of our frustration at that finitude. And so is it a good thing or is it a bad thing that eternity is placed within our hearts? Well, I think a good thing is we learn to submit to God's divine purposes. To know that He has a plan and a purpose and His timing is perfect. Eternity within our hearts is a good thing as we filter it through our dependence upon the Lord. Good in that we learn to look beyond this life into eternity, knowing that we will one day be with the Lord Jesus. But you see, if we remain hostile towards the Lord, then eternity placed within our hearts is something that is a frustration for us. We inherently know that we are created for more than this life. But if we are at enmity with Him then we do not delight in the sovereign control of God, but we come to resent it. We come to resist it. And so is eternity in our hearts something that you delight in, or is it something that frustrates you? Sinclair Ferguson says, the writer of Ecclesiastes realized that the frustration he felt at his inability to make sense of things on his own was actually the result of a God-given burden. God created a world of beauty in time and space, but he also made us to know him and to live in his presence. He thus set eternity and a desire for it in our hearts. Consequently, we can never be finally satisfied with anything that this world can offer us. Made as God's image, created for him, we must remain forever dissatisfied until we live in fellowship with Him and for His glory. We were made for eternity, not merely for time. We were made for God's presence, not merely for life in this world. And so even though the writer of Ecclesiastes has taken a hard look at life under the sun, as he looks at life under the sun, what it does, you see, is it drives him to see the one who is above the sun. He cannot help but acknowledge the Lord, the Creator. He cannot help but long for a relationship with Him. And we can say that all time is beautiful, as he does in verse 11, because God is the one who has established everything from beginning to end. Therefore, we can be joyful and we can delight in all things. The Lord is the one who has sovereign rule over time. He is the one who has absolute control from the highs in our lives to the lows, from the monumental to the seemingly insignificant. So what is the purpose of having such an understanding of the sovereign Lord of God, of of all, the one who rules over all things? What should our response be? to this Lord who rules sovereignly over all things. Well, the key to understanding what our response should be is seen in verse 14. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. And so the only, you see, proper response before the Lord of time is to humble yourself before Him, to fear the Lord. You see, on the one hand, to live for yourself, to only pursue the desires that you have in life certainly feels right and feels good for a time. 
But in the end, it will lead to misery. It will lead to frustration. It will lead ultimately to condemnation. As an image bearer, we all have eternity placed within our hearts. And because of our rebelliousness against the Lord, we seek to suppress that truth and to ignore that reality. But we cannot deny the fact that we all are created to worship the Lord. And the calling of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is a calling for each of us to humble ourselves before Him. And so if you are not right with God, the passage calls you to fear Him. This passage drives you to seek His mercy and grace that is offered to you in the hope of the gospel. Now, several applications for us to, uh, to draw from this as we think of approaching another year that the Lord has given to us. First is this, wait for the timing of the Lord. So much frustration and so much division that happens in our relationships with other people comes in our life because we insist upon having everything just the way that we want it to be. Instead, we are called to trust in God's timing and His purposes. You know, in every sermon that you have heard this past month from Pastor McWilliams, you have heard about the perfect timing of God in sending His Son to die for you. Galatians, 4, uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son to redeem those who were under the law. And so not only was Jesus born at just the right time, but as he goes about his public ministry, you see him say again and again, my hour has not yet come. That everything within his life is foreordained and nothing could happen to him until that day that was appointed by his heavenly father. Romans 5, verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so from his birth to his death, to his resurrection and to his ascension and even to his return at the end of the age, everything is set in the perfect timing of God. And so we could use here the argument from the greater to the lesser. If this is true in the life of our Savior, then it is true in our life as well. Just as Jesus trusted in his heavenly Father, so we too can trust in his timing over all things. Or consider Luke chapter 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now here, we could use the argument from the lesser to the greater. If he cares for the sparrows, if he knows the number of hairs upon your head, then certainly he will care for you and provide for the things that you need and bring about his perfect timing in your life. You see, when we begin to distrust the timing of the Lord, then we seek to take matters into our own hands. When we think that the Lord is moving too slowly, we become impatient. When we become impatient, and when we fail to trust in the Lord, then it leads to compromise of our convictions. And so as his people, we need to learn to grow in our waiting upon the timing of the Lord. The second application is this. Live your life knowing that there is a time for you to die. And to know that nothing can change that day that is set for you. 
That doesn't mean that you then live your life with reckless abandon, but live confidently, live joyfully, trusting in the Lord each day that He gives to you. Here's a great resolve that we can borrow from Jonathan Edwards as we go into the new year. Resolved, Edwards said, to live every hour as if it were my last. To live trusting in the Lord. To live knowing that my days are in His hands. To live boldly and to live confidently for Him. There was a French Reformed pastor who lived in the mid-19th century named Adolphe Monod. Many of you have read a series of sermons that he wrote from his deathbed as he preached to his small congregation. And in some of those series, he preached uh, a number of sermons on avoiding regrets. And he talked about the things that he regretted. It's probably not the things that typically come to our mind. Listen to what he said. I regret having ruled my life too much according to my own plans and not simply according to the plan that the Lord opens up for each of us right before our eyes. Perhaps we have an ideal of what the Christian life should look like, and we're only content if we reach that ideal instead of trusting in the Lord and making our personal plans subordinate to the will of God. The essence of holiness is the union of our will with the divine will, a holiness that will not simply have an external appearance, but will have an internal character, an abandonment to the will of God, wanting only what God wants, following Him in faithful obedience. There is great peace in seeking our plan only in God and in following it while renouncing self. And as Manoah preached that sermon to his people, you can see them delighting as they grew themselves to understand, here is a man who is about to be in the presence of the Lord, ready to die because of the hope that is his in the gospel alone. Are you ready to die? If this coming year is the year of your death, are you ready for eternity? A big part of living is getting ready to die. And if you are not ready to die, then the call to you is to put your hope in the risen Lord who rules over time, who defeated death, the third application is this. Make good use of the time that you have. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In Ephesians chapter 5, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. The days are short. And so wise living looks like taking what time you have been given and living it in joyful service to the Lord. In every situation that you go through in life, again, from those highest highs to the deepest lows, there is always a way for you to give glory to God. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? Is there an acknowledgement in your life that your time is not your own, but belongs to the Lord? The one who has redeemed you, body and soul, all that you are, belongs to the Lord Jesus. Are you eager to serve him all of your days? Do you delight in his control over all things? Does it bring you hope to know that God is the one that rules over all things? You see, if God is in control of absolutely everything, then everything matters. 
Just as he tried to pursue meaning in this life without reference to the Lord and came up empty again and again and again, that no matter how great his achievements might have been in this life, it was all meaningless because there was no reference to the Lord. If you are in the Lord Jesus, then the opposite is true. Everything in your life matters. God is working even in the mundane. Now, we may not like to think of this, but the vast, the vast majority of your life is insignificant. It's lived in the mundane. If someone decided for whatever reason to make a documentary of your life, they would have to weed out a great deal. And even then, it's doubtful that many people would want to watch it. (laughs) I know that that's true of my life. But the amazing thing is, even if no one else would want to watch your life, the Lord, the God, the creator of the universe, cares about every single moment of your life and is intimately involved, purposefully working. And think of the implications of this for your life. Think about the way that that could and ought to impact your marriages and your homes, the way that you conduct yourself in the workplace, the way that you live your life in the schools and the other places where the Lord has called you to live. Imagine the peace and trust and confidence that can come in your life as you live as a child of God who is under his watchful fatherly care so that even when the dog tracks mud into the kitchen, and your child drops his food on the floor for the hundredth time, even in the mundane, you live under the sovereign control of your heavenly Father. So when your 401k tanks, and when your job is up in the air, and when everything seems to be falling apart, you are still under the watchful care of your loving God. Imagine the impact that you could have on a watching world as you learn to live out of the contentment that we can draw from the truth of God's word. And so this is a great conviction that needs much developing in the Christian life. And so what is the state of your heart like as you think about the way that you live? Is your focus just upon making life as pleasurable and enjoyable as possible? When a trial comes into your life, is sort of the goal and the focus just to try to get that trial removed as quickly as possible? Or by God's grace, do you see that there is something much greater and deeper going on in your life than just a life that revolves around you? What I believe that we are called to do from this passage is this, to rest in God, to trust in the Lord of time, to resolve, to delight in your state as a finite creature, and yet not simply a finite creature, but one who is redeemed in the Lord Jesus, one who has eternity awaiting you, one who has that hope of the gospel, that promised seal of the Holy Spirit within your life, as we read earlier from Ephesians chapter 1. And so allow the hope of eternity to intrude into the present. And even as you think of the past, and you might be filled with regret and frustration and disappointment at everything that's gone on behind you, You see, what the hope of the gospel does is it frees you from that because you live under the sovereign lordship of God. And as you think of the future, it can lead to great joy and trust and delight regardless of what circumstances might come in your life. 
Because as we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 26, you are the treasured possession of the Lord. Nothing can take you from the loving hand of your heavenly Father. Verse 14 leads us to this conclusion. The sovereign God set the times forever so that his people would stand in awe before him. And this is what our response ought to be, you see, standing in awe before the sovereign one. And so stand in awe before him, people of God. Stand in awe before the Lord who rules over all. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. May the Lord be pleased to write the truth of his eternal word upon our hearts.